The human body is an incredible thing, isn't it? Don't you just hate it? Every day I feel like I'm at war with some small part of me, my ankle complaining if I stand on it wrong, or my guts screaming for attention in a quiet cinema, or my back shooting little prodding stabs of pain into me when I slouch too long. This bit isn't scripted, I genuinely hurt my thumb earlier, and I think it's starting to swell up, and I wasn't doing anything, just my thumb hurts now, for no reason, for the foreseeable future. Yes, I'm doing yoga, and no, it hasn't helped. The corporeal form is a monument to imperfection, to failure. The most beautiful person you can imagine still gets stomach aches, still has a runny nose, still feels a twinge in their knee from when they jumped down a flight of stairs at eight years old and landed wrong. At no point are we ever satisfied. The only way to experience satisfaction is to learn to love imperfection itself. But then I worry my love of imperfection is just a way to excuse my own sloppy workmanship. Am I doing the queer art of failure, or am I just bad at this? Beneath the skin, there is a violence in our bodies. A strange concoction brewing imperfectly between the wet flesh of our splintering torsos. This isn't the reason why we suffer. We do that regardless. But these chemicals, carelessly fermented in our pressure cooker guts, are the reason why you might find yourself awakening somewhere beneath the city, splayed open on the slab, white coats and blinding lights in the cold, as you're disassembled for parts. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. I am exploring the city with my friend Kay, of Billionaire's Row fame. At around 3am on a cold Tuesday in late autumn, we dart out of a 24-hour gym near Charing Cross. Basically the perfect places to meet up for missions like this, by the way, since you have access to showers and a locker to hide a change of clothes in for when you resurface. And we head down Craven Passage. Towards the northern end, there's a beaten, nondescript door with a noticeably new-looking keypad lock on it. Other than that, the only sign it's anything but a poorly labelled fire exit is a CCTV camera overhead, which points directly at the door. We're wearing high-vis jackets and hard hats with forestry visors on them to cover our faces, We're conspicuous, but in a way that hopefully just reads as overly cautious PPE, rather than breaking and entering, which is what we're doing. I'm carrying a set of tools, which Kay uses to quickly shimmy open the keypad and manually reset it to its factory combination, her hands blurring across the circuitry to get it done before anybody looks too closely. Screwing the panel back into place... She taps in the code. The door clicks open. We duck inside and take a breath.
Kew Whitehall is one of the most well-known underground complexes in central London. In some ways, it's bizarre I've never talked about it before. For those who don't know, Kew Whitehall is a network of tunnels which runs roughly from Trafalgar Square, along past Downing Street and the Cabinet War Rooms, and up to somewhere around Westminster. The full extent of the tunnels isn't clear, since they're considered protected state secrets, but we know they connect to several of the key military buildings along there, and are sometimes used for the Prime Minister to get to and from Parliament. My dad actually got down into the tunnel once when he was working nearby back in the 90s, he knew a contractor, and reportedly saw John Major being driven along towards Parliament, which confirms that they're at least large enough for vehicle traffic, and must have an above-ground road connection somewhere. We also know that they're connected to the tube in a few places, specifically through Charing Cross, although it's not clear where the station side door is. So it's possible to argue that Kew Whitehall really stretches over the whole of London. At very least, it's well connected enough to be porous, a metal shaving in the bloodstream of the city, releasing unfamiliar compounds into our organs and overriding our immune system. Parts of Kew Whitehall have been converted into museums now, specifically the Cabinet War Rooms, which you can visit as part of an Imperial War Museum tour group. And there have been enough urban exploration shows and carefully managed expeditions into the tunnels that it's easy to think of this network as a decommissioned curio. It's almost as if that's what they want you to think. Despite that, there are huge sections of Kew Whitehall which remain tightly guarded to this day. In particular, anything west of the Admiralty Citadel in St James's Park remains a complete mystery. If you talk to any arborist who's worked in the park above ground though, they'll tell you all sorts of strange rumours. Trees suddenly dropping 10 feet into unseen pits beneath the ground, mysterious earthen barrows growing up and disappearing overnight, odd chemical smells rising out of the drains, and the occasional lorry full of soil pulling out of Buckingham Palace at 5am, long before any of the tourists get there. And, in the night, from deep underground, when all is still, the occasional, muffled, barely audible, I've talked about exploring the underground comms network around Soho and Little Compton Street, but they're far from the only ones in the area that I've visited. It's been six years and nobody's turned up to arrest me for it yet, so I feel it's probably a good time to talk about visiting Q Whitehall in person. After entering from the doorway in Craven Passage, a spiral staircase leads from ground level down to the tunnels. The flue has the same exposed panel design as the staircase at Borough Station. Unlike at Covent Garden or Russell Square, nobody ever saw fit to install a custom tile pattern down this service entrance. It's also dimly lit and lacking handrails, something you come to really understand once you've descended the fifth consecutive flight. There are 257 steps down before we reach the first passage leading away. By this point, we are nice and dizzy, but the claustrophobia has mostly been and gone. 
I'm very aware that we are going to have to make the same climb back up at the end of our journey. And I'm faced with the looming concern that we might have to do it in handcuffs. We could, in fact, descend further. The stairs keep going. But this would be unwise. We know that this stairwell also leads to a rear entrance to Pindar, the most famous active known military citadel in the area. Completed in 1992, Pindar has rarely been seen by anyone without a security clearance. Trying to break into Q Whitehall is dangerous. Trying to break into Pindar is a recipe for never walking out again. That is a place designed to devour. We cut away from the black hole then, in what my compass tells me is a southwesterly direction. The tunnel quickly split again, dividing into three unmarked directions. The lights flickered, and the air was dry and still. Well, said Kay. Which way? Fermented food is a real blessing. I eat a lot of kimchi and I'm always amazed by it. A living process harnessed by humans to create something both long-lasting and delicious. It's very convenient that the same process which helps easily spoiled vegetables remain edible for months also tastes good. Much respect due to whatever strange quirk of evolution and nature made that happen. All that living stuff is also good for the stomach. We're a shifting mass of living organisms, really. A great semi-sentient flesh mechanism made up of thousands of tiny creatures, all living and dying in an unsteady, tilting harmony. Every human is a whirlwind of lives, a roiling agglomeration of being, thousands of minute souls held together and holding up a gigantic one. Although we're fragile beasts, there are bacteria within us that eat almost anything. It's just that some of them are better at it than others. If you eat nothing but lead pellets, your body will digest some of it, Try to produce sustenance and pump it to your organs. This is the problem, really. If we couldn't digest it, lead would pass through harmlessly. Instead, we break down just enough for it to poison everything else, bringing the whole edifice down upon itself. We often talk about food that we can't digest, but it's more accurate to say that there's lots of food that we can't healthily digest. There are bacteria in your body that can do incredible things with strange ingredients, bacteria that we barely understand. And, like how kimchi is made when bacteria convert starches and sugars to preservative acids, the bacteria in your gut that can take a shot of plastics also produces something new with that waste. Something volatile. Something valuable. Kay and I tacked west, towards St. James's Park. I knew we were walking into the unknown going this way. North would presumably lead towards Soho and the communication network. Maybe a different exit? 
whereas South would have eventually taken us to Parliament and all the troubles you'd expect to find beneath Parliament. West, though, took us towards Buckingham Palace. The tunnels are almost entirely unmarked, barring the occasional incomprehensible chalk pattern scribbled on the wall by workers. They also veer to and fro slightly as you walk, chicaning to make it impossible to see further than 25 metres in each direction. As a result, you can't tell exactly how far you've walked, and at any individual point you have almost no way of knowing which direction you're facing. Further crossroads in the tunnels came and went, with us choosing the path heading west each time to make it easier to navigate back the way we came. Sometimes we would hear sounds echoing through the network, or see doors leading off to subrooms, but a surprising amount of what we passed was just empty. That's the thing about building a sprawling bunker system beneath the city. Once you've bought the equipment, the only real restriction is your imagination. The initial tunnels were built in the interwar years, and then extended during the early 1950s, when British military funding was still more than 10% of our national GDP. With the looming threat of nuclear war, the idea of a tunnel system allowing for the shelter of the entire government apparatus must have been very appealing. Some of the rooms we saw, though. The areas that are open to the public as museum pieces look spartan but serviceable, almost cosy. By contrast, we passed a room with what must have been a hundred bunk beds, four high and stacked tight against each other, with barely room to manoeuvre between them. The doors had thick deadbolts on the outside, and were a long way from any of the other facilities. I tried not to think too much about it. A lot of the rooms were sealed, some had even been welded shut, but shining a torch through a glass porthole in a locked door, I saw a couple of polished L1A1 rifles stacked up in the corner. As my eyes adjusted, I realised the walls were sheer concrete, but the floor was white tiled, with a metal chair fixed to the ground in the middle, and a drain next to it. I really tried not to think too much about it.
The UK is, according to the SIPRI Arms Transports Database, the seventh largest exporter of weapons. This country is home to several of the biggest arms companies in the world, including BAE, Rolls-Royce and MBDA, all of whom manufacture weapons that are sold for use by murderous regimes everywhere. British complicity in international atrocities is well documented, and continues even as I write this episode. Protesters have been attempting to curtail sales to Israel with targeted blockades and factory shutdowns, but they've been aggressively condemned by both of our main political parties, and subject to police violence and imprisonment for their actions. I've had friends drop off the map because they're so justifiably afraid of the police response to peaceful protest, and doubly so because our media is in hegemonic lockstep with the carceral system. If you go to a protest that the press sees fit to cover, you can almost guarantee you'll be presented as a violent maniac who blocks ambulances and fights with the police. You can lose your job, your home, your family. We live in a deeply repressive regime for those who dare to suggest that selling missiles and fighter jets to apartheid states might not be an ethical way to build an economy. All this is to say that the UK is essentially one large corporation, seeking complete ideological control of its populace, and that a significant part of the corporation's interest is tied up in weaponry, including research and development. That's not a big secret from a headline perspective. All our gesturing towards being a liberal society is ultimately just the fig leaf behind which the well-known nightmare lies. But it is a secret in the specific. Any corporation has a material interest in protecting its secrets, its proprietary technologies, its speculative designs. And where better to keep them than wedged directly into the bloodstream of the city? Eventually, we ran out of road in Kew Whitehall. I started to hear things in the distance. Buzzing machinery whistling down the corridors. The occasional loud crash. What might have been talking, or might have been screaming. We slowed to a crawl, shut off our torches, got ready to run. Trusted that the path back would be as easy as the path there. Kay was taking down quick observations in a notepad she carried with her. The echoing walls made it impossible to tell how far away anything was, but there were signs of life appearing everywhere. Little piles of dirt, a bin bag with meal deal wrappers spilling out the top, a pneumatic drill leaning against a wall. Through a viewing window in one of the doors, a cavernous, well-lit room holding floor-to-ceiling chemical tanks, spilling a sharp, acrid smell into the corridor, even through the sealed entrance. The floors were clean here, The noise remained mostly in the distance, mostly just around the corner. 
an operating theatre. Lights on, clean, modern equipment, empty. The door slightly ajar as we snuck past. We rounded another corner and saw a wall covered in doors. Side by side, peepholes looking in at eye level. Heavy locks on the outside. Little hatch in the bottom. Holding cells. I walked closer. We have poison lodged in the neck of our society. A sickness that our antibodies are trying to reject, but it's too deep. If you try to dig it out, it could kill us. Maybe it's worth it. It's making everything we touch turn toxic. There are chemicals in your stomach that aren't found anywhere else in the world. Valuable chemicals. Digging them out may not kill the host, but it may not permit them a terribly valuable life afterwards. If you mess too much with the digestive system, remove too many elements, you create something unstable. Any ecosystem will eat itself in times of great stress. That's what they're doing down there. They're harvesting something valuable and leaving behind the husk to slowly auto-cannibalize. I approached the cell door, dreading what was inside. The air was still, silent. I put my eye to the peephole. Inside, a strip light harshly illuminated a hunched shape, crouched in the middle of a bare room. A small industrial toilet and sink, a stained bedroll in the corner. The figure sat with their back to me, a blanket pulled over their head. I exhaled. They heard it. Turning to face me, the blanket coming a little loose, the naked torso of a man became visible, crisscrossed with what must have been dozens of surgery scars. He was badly emaciated, his skin drawn across his collarbone, or, as I suddenly realized, his lack thereof. He didn't move in a familiar way. His limbs flopped loosely, as though missing the structure beneath them. On the older wounds, what remained of stitches began to split and leak mucus onto the floor. The smell of death filled the hallway as he twisted and contorted his body, slithering around in the pool of blood and yellow pus. With great effort, 
he began to drag himself towards the feeding hatch. voice shouted in the distance behind me. I heard footsteps. I ran. I haven't seen Kay in months now. I lost her as we sprinted back towards Charing Cross. She got ahead of me, lost count of the corners. She must have turned off the main path somehow. We both made it out of there that cold morning in 2018. But she dropped her notebook. She went off the grid shortly after. That's what led her to Billionaire's Row and everything after that. She knew she was being hunted. My activist friends started to disappear in the middle of last year. One by one, they drop off the grid, often with a reasonable-seeming note explaining that they're going away for a while. Then I never see them again. They're being removed from the guts of the city. I know they're down there. All the beautiful ones, the sharpened creatures who can digest lead and industrial waste, annihilating themselves under a strip light for profit they could never want. At night, I dream of them, roiling with mucus, bodies distended with imbalanced poisons, involuntarily at civil war limb against limb, heart against heart, stomach against stomach. This has been Season 7 of Subterraneans. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. The show will now be on hiatus, as I always am between seasons. I'll keep you posted. The best way to know what I'm up to is to subscribe to Patreon or to follow me on Twitter or whatever social media I register next. Keep an eye out, I've been doing a lot of music recently. It's all completely horrible, and I'm really, really proud of it. As always, Subterraneans is entirely written, recorded, and scored by me, so I need to ask my listeners to help with the promotion. If you know anyone who you think might enjoy Subterraneans podcast, please, pass it on to them. I'd love to drag a few more souls underground. 
If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on whatever platform you found me on. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, Isaac, Andrew, Ellie, and Sparrow. Two thirsty hands swing a needle of blood to bind me, to bind me, weaving the ocean. Thanks for listening.